Are you tired of hearing about giants? Are you tired of hearing about the rapture? One more message on the rapture this uh, Sunday. Five messages on the rapture, boy. So we're going we're gonna to move on from giants after tonight, but this is Giant Implications, Part 3, Deuteronomy Chapter 3. You can go with me in your Bible to Deuteronomy Chapter 3, verses 1 through 11. Stand with me for the reading of the Word. So here the Word of the Lord says, and this is Moses, he's saying, Then we turned and went up the road to Bashan, and Og, king of Bashan, came out against us. He and his people uh, at uh, battle at Edrai. And the Lord said to me, Do not fear him, for I have delivered him and all his people and his land into your hand. You shall do to him as you did to Sihon, king of the Amorites, who dwelt in Heshbon. So the Lord our God also delivered into our hands Og, king of Bashan, with all his people. And we attacked him until he had no survivors remaining. And we took all his cities at the time. There was not a city which we did not take from the 60 cities, all the region of Argob, the kingdom of Og of Bashan. All these cities were fortified with high walls, gates, and bars, besides a great many rural towns. And we utterly destroyed them, as we did to Sihon, king of Heshbon, utterly destroying the men, the women, the children, and every city. But all the livestock and the spoil of the cities we took as booty for ourselves. And at the time we took the land from the hand of the two kings of the Amorites who were on the side of the Jordan from the river Arnon to Mount Hermon. The Sidonians uh, call Hermon uh, Syrian and the Amorites call it Sinair. All the cities of the plain, all Gilgag of all, uh, and all Bashan, as far as Salka and Adrai, uh, cities of the kingdom of Og of Bashan. For only Og, king of Bashan, remained of the remnant of the giants. Indeed, his bedstead was an iron bedstead. Uh, is it not uh, in Rabbah of the people of Ammon? Nine cubits uh, is its length, and four cubits its width, according to the standard cubit. And Heavenly Father, we pray, Lord God, that you would open up our hearts, our minds to the word, and Lord God, that you would speak to us tonight Lord, you do have some things, Lord God, very practical things, uh, Lord Jesus, that, Lord, you want us to learn, that you want us to put into practice in our lives. And Father God, I pray that you would do that and accomplish your will in us tonight. In Jesus' name, amen. So if you look here, again, you have Og of Bashan. Um, he is essentially the remnant, or here the last of the Rephaim. Well, important to understand the Rephaim, again, descendants of the Nephilim, they are giants. It's saying here that he is the last of the Rephaim. Obviously, if you continue in the scriptures, right, you see that there were other giants, okay, giants that David had to battle, the Philistine giants of Goliath and his brothers. So what this is saying is, Agib Bashan, he is the last giant, okay, in this specific geographical area, Bashan. I'm going to talk a lot about Bashan. Notice that I, I highlighted that, Aga Bashan, Aga Bashan, 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 and another key word, uh, Mount Moriah. Now, his, uh, his bed, okay, and this could also refer to his coffin. I actually lean towards it referring to his coffin. 
13 feet in length and 6 feet wide. He's bigger than Shaq. And that guy is big. But he had to be a, a really a, a big refan. So let me just give you a picture here of um, this. This would be right here. This is the area of Bashan. You have Mount Hermon. Um, you have Caesarea Philippi. We've been there, right? I've been there many times, seven times to Caesarea Philippi. But um, it's important just to understand there's going to be some real, I think, cool implications that we'll talk about tonight about that. This um, is Mount Hermon today. Okay, that's Mount Hermon there. 9,000, we got two, uh, nine, it's 9,232 feet above sea level. This is all, this is all Bashan, okay? So this is the area where Og was essentially ruling. Just notice here Caesarea Philippi, because I want to talk to you a little bit about Caesarea Philippi. Caesarea Philippi is essentially kind of at the, uh, the, the initial steps of Mount Hermon. To go from Caesarea Philippi, you would actually ascend up to Mount Hermon. So um, in the time of Jesus, this is a, a, a diagram of what Caesarea Philippi would have looked like. Caesarea Philippi was the pagan center of the Middle East. These are all the, the pagan shrines that you have in Caesarea, uh, Caesarea Philippi. You have uh, the cave uh, here, which is where the Jordan River actually begins. And um, that cave uh, was called the Gates of Hell, and it was the place where they believed um, you would enter into the underworld, a place of, of demons. You had um, the shrine to, uh, this was the shrine to Caesar, to Augustus Caesar, um, the shrine uh, to Pan, this was, a Pan was a, uh, a Greek, you know, a Greek so-called god. You had the Temple of Zeus, uh, the dance floor of the sacred goats. You know, if you know, goats are usually related to the devil. Uh, Pan was uh, the Greek god of shepherds. And um, you also had here, there's another, another court here, the court of Nemesis. She was the Greek god of revenge, of jealousy. And um, again, the, the cave, the gates, uh, called the gates of Hades. The gates of the underworld. So here's, a, again, another picture. This is um, Caesarea Philippi today. That is not our, our group there, but um, again, we've, we've been there many times. You notice all the, all the shrines are gone, been destroyed. Uh, but this is what it looks like. And again, here is the, uh, this is the, the cave that would have been called the, the gates of, uh, of Hades or the gates of hell. And again, this is where the Jordan River begins to uh, come out. I want to I want to read something to you from the book of Enoch, and I want you to understand. I do not believe the book of Enoch is uh, a part of the Bible. I do not believe that it is what we would call canonical. But the book of Enoch is mentioned by which writer in the New Testament? By Jude. Jude mentions the book of Enoch. Okay, I believe it's it's a book that has historical significance. The book of Enoch, and I'm going to read from, um, this is, uh, would be uh, chapter 6. It says, And it came to pass, when the children of men had multiplied, 
that in those days were born unto them uh, beautiful and comely daughters. And the angels, the children of heaven, saw and lusted after them and said to one another, Come, let us choose us wives from among the children of men and beget us children. What is that talking about? Genesis, uh, Genesis what? Genesis 6, right? The incursion of the Nephilim. So uh, it goes on and it says, um, and uh, Semjaza, this is what um, the author of the book of Enoch is saying, this is an angel, a fallen angel, who was their leader, said unto them, I fear you will not indeed agree to do this deed, and I alone shall have to pay the penalty of a great sin. And they all answered him and said, let us all swear an oath and all bind ourselves by mutual imprecations not to abandon this plan, but to do this thing. Then swear they all together and bound themselves by mutual imprecations upon it. And they were in all 200 who descended in the days of Jared on the summit of Mount Hermon. I want you to notice what the book of Enoch is saying. Where did Genesis chapter 6 happen according to the book of Enoch? Mount Hermon. There's, there's significance there. By the way, the rabbis um, believed uh, that the incursion of Genesis chapter 6 was angels cohabitating with women, and they believed that it happened on Mount Hermon. The early Christians all believed that it happened on Mount Hermon and that it was a true incursion okay, of fallen angels, again, cohabitating with human women, which then produced the offspring. Okay, of the of the Nephilim. So when I, so I said this, I said this last week. That I showed you uh, actually the week before the three different theories about Genesis six. That uh, one that they were Canaanite kings. Again, there's nothing there's nothing in Scripture that that could even point to that. And then the other is that they were the sons of Seth. They're called the Ben Elohim. And again, when Ben Elohim is mentioned three times. I'm reading actually the book of Job right now, three times in the book of Job, and then in, uh, in Genesis chapter 6, they always refer um, in Job to angels, and also in one of the Psalms. So four times it refers to angels, and then in Genesis chapter 6, we believe it's talking about angels. So um, again, this is saying that the incursion happened on Mount Hermon. Again, that is uh, important. Here's just another another map, and um, give you just a, a picture of how wide uh, Bashan is. And notice, it's, we, we, call it, we, we call it the Transjordan to understand um, that, you know, this is essentially where the tribe of Ephraim and Manasseh would inhabit. You know, they made the deal with, with Moses, we want the territory, and Moses said, hey, if we go to war, you better come over here and you better be fighting for us. But um, the, uh, the other tribes all settled you know, here on um, the western side of the Jordan. Again, a, a, a picture, this is a modern day picture of the cave that you see there that is called the gates of hell. The place also called the place of the serpent. And um, the spirits of the ancient Nephilim kings is what the pagans referred to it as. And again, in Jesus' day, um, this is Caesarea Philippi. What happened at Caesarea Philippi? What did Jesus do? He asked two questions, right? He took uh, the apostles up to Caesarea Philippi. Let's look at it together. Let's look at Matthew chapter 16, verse 13 through 20. 
When Jesus came into the region of Caesarea Philippi, and by the way, understand there's a difference between Caesarea Philippi and Caesarea. Caesarea is on um, the uh, west coast of Israel. Uh, we've been there. Again, it's, it's, it's really quite a beautiful place where Paul spent a whole lot of his time in prison before he got sent off to Rome. But that's, uh, they're two different places. It was named, again, Caesarea, it was named uh, by Philip for Caesar. Okay, Herod. Right? Herod's son Philip named it right uh, for Caesar. So when Jesus came into the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples saying, who do men say that I, the son of man, am? And so they said, some say John the Baptist, some Elijah, and others Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. Well, you stop there. Who do people say Jesus is today? And let me tell you something. You will get a wide array of answers. The Jehovah Witnesses believe that Jesus is who? Michael the Archangel, right? The Mormons believe that Jesus is the brother of Lucifer, of Satan, right? The, um, the, you get the Buddhists who believe Jesus was a Tibetan master. The, the years between 12 and 30, right, when he was in the temple as a 12-year-old and when he's 30 years old starting his ministry, the belief is that he went to Tibet, to Tibet. He studied, right, amongst the Tibetan masters, and that's where he learned to do what he was doing. I mean, sort of stuff is stranger than, you know, than fiction. New Agers, right, he is this enlightened being, right, and on and on. You're going to people, like he, was, he was a nice guy, right, he's a cool guy, right, he's a rabbi, and he's something else, right, some other eye. But um, everybody's got their opinion about Jesus. What's important here, he asked them, you know, who do people say that I am? And in verse 15, he said to them, but who do you say that I am? If the first question is the million-dollar question, the second question is the billion-dollar question. Who do you say that I am? Simon Peter, Peter answered and said, you are the Christ, you are the Messiah. Very important, the, the, the one prophesied throughout the Tanakh. The Tanakh is all about Messiah. You are the Messiah, the Son of the living God. Not a Son of God, the Son of the living God, right? This is a, a name of deity. When Jesus claimed to be the Son of God, what did the uh, religious leaders, the Pharisees, want to do to him? You can see this in John chapter 8. You can see it in John chapter 11. They wanted to stone him. They wanted to stone him because what? You, a mere man, claim to be God. He's calling, claiming to be equal, you know, equal with God. So then verse 17. So Jesus answered and said to him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father in heaven. And I also say to you that you, Peter, and on this rock I will build my church and the gates of Hades shall not prevail, right? Look at the scenario. The pagan world is behind him, right? All, all the, the pagan shrines are behind Jesus. And there is what is called, right, the gates of hell. And the gates of hell shall not prevail. Now, on this rock, I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. What's the rock? Who do the Catholic Church, the Catholic Church, who do they say the rock is? Peter, right? Peter's name in, in Greek, it's, it's Petros. You know what Petros means? Like, small rock. Yeah, 
It's a small when you're walking down the street and you you kick you know you kick the rock. God's name, okay, is Petra. Right? Jesus is called the chief cornerstone. David, you know, in Psalm 18, the Lord is my rock, my fortress, right, my salvation, uh, my refuge. Um, the word, the word in Greek for uh, rock, okay, that Jesus uses here. Again, is Petra, and it's it's a mass, it's a mountain, really. The, the the huge rocks that we'd see when we go down into the wilderness, down into the Dead Sea. Um, that's that's the picture of you know of the you know the rock. So you know, on this rock, is he referring to himself? Likely. Is he referring to Peter's confession? Right, you are the Messiah, the Son of the Living God. I'll give you one other one other possibility here is that he is referring to the very rock of Mount Hermon and Bashan. And really and essentially, folks, we live on a rock. On this rock I will build my church. And look at where the church has been built, because the church has been built in every corner of the earth. The, the kingdom of God is, is, you know, has permeated, right, like yeast into dough. Remember Jesus used that, you know, that one time he used yeast in a positive way, but the kingdom of God is like, is like the yeast that goes into the dough, right? And it permeates the dough and makes it grow. So was he, was he talking about, again, you know, specifically in the geography, was he talking about Mount Hermon? Was he talking about Bashan? Right, this this demonic place, or was he talking about again the earth as a whole? That's a question I'll ask him when I, I'm sure he'll reveal it to me just like that before. And uh, and then he says, "And uh, I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven." Tune into this. This is empowerment. I see too many Christian people, and sometimes too many Christian people in our church, who are living disempowered lives. I think sometimes people look, you know, oh, that's, this is, you know, the pastor's the one in power. He has, he has given us authority and power. He has, you know, he has given us, just Matthew chapter 28, verse 18 through 20. All authority has been given unto me. He says, therefore, go and make disciples of all nations. What is he saying? I have the authority. I'm giving you the authority to go out. And in Acts chapter 1, verse 8, when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, you shall receive dunamis. You shall receive power. It's, it's empowerment. There's, I think, a correlation between the authority and power that has been given to us and I'm saying that because people say, well, he gave it to the apostles, and that's very clear. You go through, uh, in fact, Luke chapter 9, 10, and then he gave it to the 70. He gave it to us. We should be on the offensive, not the defensive, against the enemy. I think the, the enemy, uh, the Christian, whether a young person or an old person, the Christian walking in the power of God, that is truly walking in the power of God, I believe the demons shudder, but they're shuddering because they're, they're not grasping on to that, to that power and authority that's been given. So, and I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. 
Who do you give your keys to? You bet you have, you trust them, right? You give somebody, hey, somebody's going to come to you know, hey, I'm I'm, I'm going to be away for a few days, you know, could you maybe come over, look at you know, look at the dog, look at you know, um, turn the sprinklers on or water the lawn and water the plants. It's some it's somebody you trust. So this this is where Jesus here is saying he's giving these keys to those he trusts. And I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Then he commanded his disciples that they should tell no one that he was Jesus the Christ. Now, just you know, under, to understand, to loose, the, the picture here is, we have been given the power, we have been given the power of the word of God. You know what the beauty of the Word of God is when you look at the armament of God? Right? What is the one offensive armament? The sword of the Spirit. The Word of God. The rest of them are all defensive. So here is the, the offensive weapon, the Word of the God. When you, use, when you use the Word of the Lord, you have the power to lose people. To, you, you have the power to take that sword and break the chains but you have the power to loose. And by the way, the, the loosing and, and the binding, they were rabbinical sayings. The, the apostles clearly understood this. They had heard this you know, before in synagogue. So he, he is saying here, you have been given the power to loose people, right? If they, if they reject it, they will stay bound. But you have the power to set, like, what does it say when, when Jesus read from Isaiah chapter 61? I've come to set the captives free. In the proclaiming of the living word of God, right, in that authority and power, we have the power to, to loose people, to set people free from those chains. Right? And we were all in chains at one time, right? The enemy had us bound. And when that, uh, when that living word came, it was able, again, to break those chains and, and, and you know, and set us free. So, um, Keith there. So, again, that... Setting there happened in Caesarea Philippi. That's Matthew 16. What happens in Matthew 17? Where do they go? They go up onto a high mountain. Doesn't tell us Mount Hermon. Okay. So watch, watch this. Matthew, um, Matthew 17, verses 1 through 8. Now after six days... Jesus took Peter, James, and John, his brother, and led them up on a high mountain by themselves. Let me just, I want to stop there for a second. The Roman Catholic Church says that the place that this happened was actually Mount Tabor. Mount Tabor is right smack in the, mil, in the middle of, um, of Megiddo, the Valley of Megiddo. And I didn't take you guys there with me last time. I used to take uh, take people there. Did I take? I didn't take you to Mount. I did take you to Mount Hermon. Oh, we did. No, I'm sorry. To Tabor. I took you to Tabor. Remember driving? We drove up in the Mercedes Benz at 90 miles an hour, which was a frightening thing. Let me just say this: Mount Tabor is about 1,800 feet above sea level. Mount Hermon is 9,300 feet above sea level. And Mount Hermon was right where they were. Right. This is this is. They were just right there. And um, by the way, they could have done a six, the, the six-day journey. It's about 82 miles from Herman to, uh, to Tabor. They could have done it. 
in six days. But I lean towards, it, they went up to Mount Hermon. And that's where Jesus then would be revealed to them in his glory. So let me, let me show you this. By the way, you know what's something, uh, people always ask me this question. The last verse of chapter 16, who's, who's, who's got their Bible open? Read the last verse of chapter 16. Read it out loud. Faith, you got it? Go ahead, Ritter. Read it out loud. Right, so he's saying, there are some of you here, you're not going to see death till you see the Son of Man coming in his glory, coming in his kingdom. So people ask me that and saying, well, geez, you know, what, was Jesus wrong? They're thinking of his second coming. He was talking about what was going to happen just in the next few days with him taking, right, James, John, and Peter up onto the Mount of Transfiguration. Okay, so verse 2. And he was transfigured before them, and his face shone like the sun, and his clothes became as white as the light. And behold, Moses and Elijah appeared to them, talking with him. And then Peter answered and said to Jesus, Lord, it is good for us to be here, if you wish. This Peter's like, Peter's, his brain is scrambled here. He's in awe. He <laughs> said, so Peter suffered from, from foot and mouth disease, just always putting his foot in his mouth. And then, then this is funny. Then Peter uh, answered him and said to Jesus, Lord, it is good for us to be here. If you wish, let us make here three tabernacles, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. And while he was still speaking, behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them, and suddenly a voice came out of the cloud saying, This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. Hear him. This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. Hear him. And when the disciples heard it, they fell on their faces and were greatly afraid. But Jesus came and touched them and said, Arise and do not be afraid. And when they had lifted up their eyes, they saw no one but Jesus only. There's something interesting. Jesus told them, don't tell anybody about it until I am glorified. You know, Peter didn't tell anybody about it until his first epistle. Then he told people about it. So I want you to again, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. I believe this happened on Mount Hermon. Where am I going with this? What's, what's the significance of this? Remember going back Genesis chapter 6 verse 1 and 2. The sons of God, the Ben Elohim. They came down and they cohabitated with women. These fallen angels. Producing these Nephilim. We talk about, I believe, the Nephilim, their disembodied spirits, our demons. People worship idols. You know the scripture verses in Corinthians. You see this uh, in Psalms, Jeremiah. What is the worship of de uh, what is the worship in, uh, of idols? The worship of all the false gods in this world, all the false idols in this world, all these false deities that people bow down to and worship as God. The sons of God. If you were Jew living in the time of Jesus, the influence, again, of the scriptures, the Tanakhs, the teachings of the rabbis, were all, again, centered in the incursion where fallen angels cohabitating with women. The Ben Elohim. And it, them standing before Jesus on Mount Hermon, and again, that, that the, the influence of the writings, okay, and I, I don't believe they were actually written by Enoch. I believe they were written by somebody later on, but that the incursion actually happened on Mount Hermon. 
the word of the Father to the Son, this is my beloved Son. This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased, hear him. Not these fallen angels and these demons that have come, you know, come from that. I'll show you one other interesting verse. In Psalm 22, verse 12, do you ever wonder, wonder about this? Psalm 22 is all about Jesus' crucifixion. In fact, it says his hands and his feet would be pierced. One of the greatest, you know, clear prophecies in Scripture. But it describes this. There's about, I think I, think I counted about 11 different things that Jesus fulfilled on the cross that are written in Psalm chapter 22. But it says this, many bulls have come past me, strong bulls of Bashan have beset me around. I didn't see any bulls, I never heard of any bulls, right? The, the giant bulls of Bashan, they were giant bulls, they're like our um, Angus bulls. I didn't see any bulls around Jesus. So I, I think it's speaking of something, you know, figuratively. The bulls of Bashan, you know what I believe that's talking about? I think that's talking about demons. How many of you ever read the Narnia Chronicles or watched Narnia? Remember when Jesus is brought, or the Aslan is brought to the rock to be killed? It depicts C.S. Lewis's depiction of the crucifixion. What were, what were all of the, the, the wicked, right? All those wicked creatures doing? They're celebrating, right? I, I believe that the devil knew that this was the beginning of Zen. But to torture the Son of God? To, you know, brutalize the Son of God? There was a, there was a, a, a bloodlust in that. But I think, well, Jesus, here's a, a picture that I pulled up. Jesus on the cross. The bulls of Bashan, these demons, were all around celebrating. And you can see, you can see the influence of them in the people. The Pharisees. The brutality of the uh, Roman soldiers. Let me take you to another place for a few minutes. You've heard the story of David and Goliath, right? Have you heard that before? You know, when I was a little kid, we didn't, we didn't read the Bible, but my mother had bought this, um, this picture dictionary, and I, she would read it to us at night, my brother and I, when, when we go to bed. And there was a story of David and Goliath. I kept asking her, David and Goliath, David. I mean, I was like, I, I, she must have read David and Goliath to me 50 times. So just let me read to you just a little excerpt of uh, 1 Samuel chapter 17, 48 to 51. So it was when the Philistine arose and came to drew near to meet David, that David hurried and ran towards the army to meet the Philistine. And then David put his hand in his bag and took out a stone, and he slung it and struck the Philistine in his forehead, so that the stone sank into his forehead, and he fell on his face to the earth. So David prevailed over the Philistine with a sling, and a stone, and struck the Philistine and killed him. But there was no sword in the hand of David. Therefore David ran and stood over the Philistine, took his sword and drew it out of his sheath, and killed him and cut off his head with it. So here again, David, this 17-year-old boy, uh, the stone, I don't know if you've ever seen, some, some people have actually 
done a depiction of a slinging of a stone and what it can do to uh, actually a, a skull and it get embedded in the skull. I'm not sure if it killed him, but I'll tell you that when he took the sword and cut off his head, that killed him. He was dead. And then David, he, you know, he took the head. You know what the, the scripture says he took it? Where did he take it to? Where? Well, well, the city that he took it to, though. Jerusalem. Yeah, that was, it was, he, he carried that, he carried that head with him for a number of miles. And so in 1 Samuel chapter 17, 54, and David took the head of the Philistine and brought it into Jerusalem, but he put his armor in his tent. He put the armor in his tent. He had to bury the head somewhere. Found a place to be able to stick the head. That's uh, a picture of Golgotha. The place where Jesus was crucified. Some, you know, looks like a skull. Uh, I don't know if it was on top of the mountain or below the mountain. In Matthew 27, 33-35, it says, And when they had come to the place called Golgotha, I want you to see the, the word. It's Golgotha, Goliath, Goliath, Golgotha. That is to say the place of the skull. And they gave him sour wine mingled with gall to drink, but when he had tasted it, he would not drink it. Then they crucified him and divided his garments, casting lots that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the prophet. Let's go back, all the way back, to Genesis chapter 3.15. And I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your seed and her seed, he shall bruise, uh, he shall bruise, the word really is crush, your head, and you shall bruise, crush his heel. The crushing of the heel is not a fatal blow. The crushing of the head is a fatal blow. I believe that David, again, is a foreshadow of Jesus. Right, we have typologies, right, in the scriptures. Joseph is a typology of Jesus, okay? Really, Moses is a typology of Jesus. Joshua is a typology of Jesus. David is a typology of Jesus. David <laughs> crushed the head of the giant. When Jesus, when Jesus was crucified, I'm going to show you something probably if you've never seen before. The way the Romans would actually attach the foot to the cross, and we of course always think of it going through the right through the front of the foot, the instep. Am I saying it? There has been a lot of archaeological findings that the nails were actually put through the heel. Have you ever have you ever seen that? So these are these are actually that. Um, the one on the left is a remake, but the one on the right is actually the ankle of someone who was crucified. And they would essentially nail the person's ankles to the cross from side to side. 
that's a picture of what it would have looked like. He will strike your heel, right? But you will crush his head. Where did that happen? That happened on the cross. The enemy struck his heel, crushed his head. Now he's fatally wounded, and he's he's basically dead. He's a walking he's a walking dead man. And we have victory. When we fight, we always remember, we don't fight for victory, we fight from victory. So just to walk away today, tonight from this message, do you have your keys? Do you have your keys? And you have the power and authority to lose or to bind by the proclaiming of the word of God. We need to be about that and be doing that in this time. Amen? Amen. Uh, worship team can come up. Heavenly Father, thank you, Lord God, for your word. Your word is truly amazing. Lord, I love it. You blow my mind, Lord God, day after day as I come to it. Uh, Lord God, it truly fills me with awe and wonder, and I thank you so much for that. I pray, Lord God, and just impress your word upon our hearts tonight. Let us leave here, Lord God, with the keys of the kingdom in our hand. And Lord God, let us operate in the power and authority of Jesus Christ and his word. And Father, be used by you to set people free. Amen.